Father, thanks for this day and for bringing us out safely to your place of worship. I pray that we would be we would be attentive today. We would learn, and we thank you for this opportunity again to gather together to study in Christ's name. Amen. Um, today we're going to start talking about translations and versions of the Bible, and uh, we only got a couple more weeks left here on bibliology, and then we start our study on spiritual warfare, Satan, demons, angels spiritual warfare. So that's coming up. Um, When we talk about translations and versions, we need to have some definitions to start out with. Um, And that's what we have here. Don't worry, I will be getting you notes for this next week. Okay? It's not Teresa's fault. It's my fault. I send her the stuff technically for next week. So don't worry about it. We will get you. Yeah. We're going to start it this week. We're going to be doing some of it this week, but I've missed some information. And after I did, I said, oh, I've got to get this in there or they're not going to be able to follow what's going on. So let's look at some definitions. When we look at translations and versions, let's some, get some definitions down. Number one, what is a translation? A translation is the rendering of one literary work to another in a different language. That's a translation. I take something in French, I make it into English. I take something in Spanish, I make it into French. Um, it's to go from one language to another. Okay, so it's just the translation. And that would involve, if any of you have taken a foreign language, it would involve an understanding of the grammar, the word order, the syntax, all that kind of stuff, vocabulary, all those things. That's what a translation is. A literal translation is the rendering of a given literary work from one language to another in a rigid word-for-word manner. Now, Here's the difference between a rigid, uh, a literal translation and a translation. If any of you have taken foreign languages, you know that in many foreign languages, the word order is different than in English, right? So if you take French or Spanish, they, they put their words in different places than we do in our sentences. A translation would take into consideration the word order and would take the word order in one language and change it to the word order in another language. A literal translation doesn't do that. It just takes it literally word for word. So if you get a literal translation, it's harder to follow, right? Because you're not used to the other syntax necessarily, all right? So that's what a little, you understand the difference between these two things. So that's what Google translation. Yeah. Google translation is pretty much a literal translation. It doesn't give you a nice, smooth, flowing translation. They're still working on that for computers to pull that one off. But uh, it can give you a rigid word-for-word, but not a good translation, a good flowing translation. A transliteration, which which is another word that may pop up, is just uh, the rendering of one language's letters to the letters of another. For example, a transliteration would be, I take the Hebrew letters and I make them their English equivalent letters and give you that. All right, so for example, Elohim is a transliteration of the Hebrew word for God. All right? And a lot of times, for example, when Pastor Jim would use a Greek word, um, sometimes that might be a transliteration because they're close. Um, but that's all it is. It's just taking the, the, the letters of one language and change them into the letters of another language. All right? And a lot of times, I don't know if, you, if, if K. Arthur has this, where you read through the K. Arthur stuff, and she has the a Greek word, that's a transliteration. All right. You don't see the Greek letters. What do you see? 
English letters. The English equivalents of the Greek letters behind it. So that's a transliteration. Alright? So that's what, that's what we have here. A version, when we talk about versions, alright, is a translation from an original language to any other language. Alright, so you go from an original language to another language. Now, this is important. We talk about versions, we're talking about first generation stuff. What do we mean by, what do you think we mean by first generation? Yeah. We don't translate from the original to something else and then from something else to English. We go from the original to the English. So, for example, the New English Bible, the American Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, the KJV, all of those are versions because what you've done is you've gone back to the original language documents, the original language text, and you've gone from there to English. All right, in those cases. Or, and this, this, this applies really to any language. I'm using English as our example. But really any language um, is applicable here. If I go from, if I take a work that's written in Spanish and I translate it to English, that's a version there. When we talk about Bible versions, when you think of a version of a Bible, we're talking about original language to English. All right? Yeah. Since that, you know, that's the truth, then how is it that you ended up, not you, I mean, how is it that three versions ended up happening, or however many there are, you gave examples of three there, mm. if they're all from the original language, so I think the answer probably is that even though they're all from the original language, in the process of translation from the original, those translators took nuances with the actual word and made it, right. you know, yeah. Because one of the questions, and we'll explore this in a little bit, but one of the questions people have is, okay, you have the Greek, you have the English, why in the world then do I go down to the, you know, Zondervan Bible bookstore, you know, and I got the New Living Translation, the ESV, the RSV, the KJV, the NKJV, the NIV, and on and on and on it goes. Why do we have all of these? I mean, why in the world do we need all of these? And uh, the answer to that is, is simply that, let's take the, the case of the King James Bible. When was it originally translated? 1611 is, yeah, 1611. And the revised version that most people use is from like uh, a short time out, like 1630s. You can't, if I brought in an original KJV 1611 Bible, you could not read it because of the English. It's the old English. It's not the Victorian English. Um, so that was something that they did back in 17, let's say 1630, I think is the one that most people have that they use. Um, but that's 400 years ago, going on to 400 years ago. So what has happened since then and now? The English language changed, right? So not only has the English language changed with our grammar, our words, our syntax, but what else have we found? The meaning of the words might have changed because we've dug up more stuff to help us understand a little bit what a word may have what we thought it used to mean may have a different nuance now. And what else have we discovered in the meantime? A lot more manuscripts. The King James was translated from just a few manuscripts. 
we have a whole lot more manuscripts now that we have access to that can give us a better insight into the, the, the exactness of the text. Now, what we're talking about here is going from something, you know, that's you know, 99.1 to 99.5 or something like that, just keying in a little bit more precise, a little bit more fine. But that's where a lot of these come from. And a lot of them come from um, just that our English language has changed. We, we, we speak differently. We talk differently. No, not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. That, 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 that's two of the factors. Two of the factors is that language changes, our language changes. Number two, second factor is we find more Greek manuscript evidence. We understand the Greek a little better, okay? Especially those words that we call, and I'll throw this out, hapax, H-A-P-A-X. That's a word that only appears one time in the, in the Greek text. Those are tougher because we need to translate it as. It only appears one time. There's nothing to compare it to. All right? So those, those, it's, those are two things. Um, and, and, the third, and the third thing is the method in which you do the translation. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. Whether you do a free translation or a more literal translation. There's a, there's a scale. There's a, a continuum on that. For example, those of you who have the, um, you know, the American, the ASV, the, not the ASV, the um, American Standard Version. I guess it is, yeah, the ASV. That's a very literal translation. It's more literal than the King James. Did anybody use the ASV? The, or the NASB? The NASB, excuse me, the NASB. The New American Standard. You precepts uses that? Yeah. Well, now, try to read the NASB and then go read the King James. Which one flows a little better? Well, you're weird. The King James flows a little better. The reason the King James flows a little better is because it's not a rigid, it's, it's a less rigid translation. It's not that the NASB is a bad translation. It's more literal than the King James. Yeah, King James is more literary, it's more poetic, it flows a little better, you know. That, that's, that's really what's going on there. So there's all these factors that cause these different translations to pop up. Alright? So that's, that's what some of the dynamic. But listen, yeah. The NIV is, is very much towards what we call the, I'll get to that in a minute. It's more towards the, what we call dynamic equivalent end as opposed to the literal translation, and I'll get to that. I'll answer that. New King James is updated King James. Yeah. Yeah. They modernized the language, plus they went back and did some additional Greek manuscript work and brought some additional Greek influences to bear. Yeah. Oh, they, they, they pop a vein on that one. All right. Pop a vein on that one. Here's another thing. Here's a, here's a fourth factor. And probably I should, if I do this in future times, I should put a slide here showing the different factors. That's a probably a good idea. Um, one of the fourth factors is what manuscript tradition do you use? All right. For example, when you look at the King James text and anything derived off the King James, they use the Byzantine manuscript family. Remember we talked about manuscript families? They're very much on the Byzantine or majority text family. 
the NIV uses the Alexandrian family, all right, which according to the KJV people is demonic, all right. I'm just saying what they're saying. I'm not agreeing with them. I'm just saying that's how they believe it. So, so what you have is the, is the manuscript family, and then you have translations that are based on all the evidence. All right, which is more what the New King James did. What the New King James basically did is take the King James, try to say as true as it could to the King James, but take into consideration some of those issues that, like, you know, the issues we talked about last week, that you have the big thick thing on those ten issues. They took those into consideration, so they took some other manuscript evidence in to consideration that the original KJV translators did not to give us a different translation. It's very close, but it's a little different. And the English is modernized. You know, the English is much more modernized than the New King James, which is, by the way, a very good translation if you all want to use that. All right, a, a revision or a revised version is a translation that has been critically examined and reviewed to correct errors or to make other necessary emendations. For example, when we talk about a revised version, you have the King James of, I'm picking a year just out of the hat, 1630. And then in 1680 they come along and they take the 1630 edition and they go back over it with a fine tooth comb and they compare some maybe a little bit more manuscript evidence or something or the language has changed and they make a few minor alterations. Now we have a revision okay, of the King James. It's not a new translation because if I was going to do a new translation, what would I do? I go back to ground zero. I would not start out with a text. I would go back to ground zero to original languages and go from there. All right. So, so if you want to think about it in, in reality, this is interesting. They talk about the King James Version. Technically, in the sense of the word here, the King James is not a version of the Bible. Actually, the King James is a revision. They started off with Tyndale's English translation and then they brought in the Greek manuscript evidence and they revised it a little bit and that's where we get the King James. Do you follow what I just said there? So would the revised standard version be a version or a revision? It's, it's a version. The RSV is actually a version. Alright, because what they did is they went back to the original languages. Alright, when they did the King James back in 1611 or whatever, they did not go back to the original Greek text and start over from ground zero, they took an English text that they already had and used that as the basic starting point, comparing it to the original languages to produce the King James. Do you see what's going on here? So even though it's the KJV, the V is the longest. Technically, the V is a revision, not a version. When we're talking about going back to the original documents, we're not talking about the argument. No, we're talking about the, the best you know, evidence that we have. Okay. Now, the one thing I did not go through in the class because I didn't want you all to glaze over and fall over dead um, is I didn't go through all the Greek translations that they have. There are actually a whole. I have a whole series of um, st uh, in material on the different Greek versions because what they did, of course, there, there's no. There's like three or four, possibly, just about three or four or a handful, of texts that have the whole Bible, the Greek texts that have the whole Bible in it. Most of them are fragments. Most of them are, I've got the book of Luke here in this manuscript. I've got Mark over here. i got Matthew over here. Here's a couple of them with John in it. And, and they put it all together to get a Greek text that can then be used. You follow what's going on there? There's no, 
one manuscript with all of the new 20, all the 27 books of the New Testament in it. Rather, we have manuscripts of all 27, but not all in one thing that comes back from the, you know, third century. So what they've done and what Erasmus did is he took all of these different books and he created a version of a Greek text using all of them. So that then that Greek text could then be picked up and used to produce versions. Do you follow what's going on? Okay. No. They're gone. Because probably somebody put them in a shrine and worship them, or you find it over in the Catholic Church somewhere with, you know, people worshiping it. I'm not making that up, because that's what they do over there. Um, and, uh, yeah. Emendations, I like that. What's that? Changes, right? Changes. Okay. Amen. To amend the document is oh, to change it. Oh, as in us, emendations. Yeah. Like no, that's actually a word. But I mean, is it, it, it's from amended. Yeah, like yeah, you're, you're changing it. And again, what we're talking about here, folks, we're not talking about, for the most part, massive changes. We're talking about, you know, um, making the word order flow a little better. You know, maybe getting a little more precise word in something. Because um, one of the troubles you have, of course, when you're doing Bible translation, is I've got a Greek word that can be translated to three or four different English words. Which one do I use? You have the same thing in other languages, right? If, you, if anybody has any foreign language in here, you know that sometimes you have a foreign word somewhere where you can translate it one or two or three different words. It's sort of like, you know, pretend I have the Greek word for a car. It doesn't have one. They didn't have it back then. But I'm using it as an example. We have a Greek word for a car. Do I translate that car, automobile, sedan, truck? What do I translate it as? Vehicle, you know, I mean, we have different words that can all go from one. And the other thing, too, is you have multiple Greek words that sound, that can be translated to the same English word. We have problems with that here. A lot of times in your Bible, you know, life, when you see life, the word L-I-F-E in the Bible, that could be from zoe, which is referring to eternal type life, or bios, referring to biological life. Well, which one is it? Well, it depends on the text of the scripture. And if you take K. Arthur, she tells you why it's important that you know which one it comes from. All right, because that'll help you understand better the context. When Paul says, for example, in Timothy, First Timothy says, um, any man who's a good soldier doesn't get himself entangled with the affairs of this life. All right, the life he's talking about there is bios, your existence. If you're a soldier, you don't worry about what am I going to eat today? What am I going to put on today? You're told what you eat. You're told what you put on. And the same thing, he's saying if you're a Christian soldier, you're not worried about, you know, what am I going to eat, what am I going to put on. You have bigger things to worry about. You don't get caught up in the affairs of existence like we do. <laughs> um, and that's what Paul's talking about. But that helps you understand there's a nuance within that word. And so what translators are trying to do constantly is they're trying to get a little bit more precise, a little bit better, a little bit more exact. And that's why some of these translations come about. All right, you following with what's being said so far? Okay. And by the way, the Dewey Reams, what is the Dewey Reams translation? That's the Catholic Bible. Catholics have that. All right. That's actually translated from Latin, which was translated from Greek. Okay. So that, that's the, the words there. 
I'm just throwing these words out because they're going to pop, you know, if you read or study, they, they'll pop up. A recension is a critical and systematic revision of a text. It's sort of like a revision, but you're just going a little bit further. All right. Some of these words overlap in meaning. All right. Um, here's, a, here's a word that we often use, a paraphrase. A paraphrase is a rather free translation or loose. And what it's trying to do is trying to translate not as much words, but the thoughts or the ideas. Okay? Um, examples would be um, the Phillips, and I don't know if anybody has this, the Phillips New Testament um, in modern English, the TEV, the Living Bible. Um, the message. It's probably one of the ones that you would think of. Now, now Peterson says, no, the message is a translation. I went back to the original languages. He wants to make it a translation. Really, it is a free translation or it's almost a paraphrase. Because what he did is he, is he um, interpreted the text for you. Here's, here's the issue with a paraphrase. In a paraphrase, what is the writer doing for you? Right. And that could be right, could be wrong. All right. One of the difficulties, and I know a lot of people say, well, you know, what version of the Bible do you use? Well, I use the message because I can understand it. Understand what you're doing. That's, that's the theology of Peterson. Not necessarily the theology of the New Testament. I'm not saying he's a heretic or anything like that. Don't, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what you've done is you've allowed him to explain to you what the text means, not necessarily going back for yourself to figure out what it means. So, is a paraphrase something good to have? Well... Sure, there's nothing wrong with it, but just don't think that that's your translation because it's not. It's a paraphrase. Don't use it as a study Bible. There's some overlap in in meaning here. Uh, a recensionism is a probably a more critical. Analysis. It goes a little bit deeper, and that, you know some of these words are sort of they're they're used sort of loosely depending on you know what, what how you want to catch. If you were a philologist and a and a and a linguist, you would worry about the different nuances here. I'm just tossing out that when you see these words, understand revision, recension. Those are further translation of something that was already done. You're just refining it, making it sound a little better, and working on it. Um. Today's English version. Okay, good. Today's English version. I can't keep track of all the three-letter acronyms that are out there. All right. A commentary is an explanation of Scripture, so that's not even a translation. It's an explanation. Um, there's a guy out there called Wiest that created an expanded translation. What he did is he took the Greek, he, ex he made an expanded translation, and then he added commentary to it explaining what it was. So it's beyond a paraphrase even. All right. A paraphrase, you're actually trying to write something that's close to the text. An expanded commentary is much beyond it. It's like me reading a verse and explaining to you what it is as I go along. That's an expanded commentary. All right. And a free translation is, ex is an extremely loose translation. It, the message is a good example. It's just a free translation. Okay, the, the original Greek said this, and then I freely translate that into English 
in a very non-literal, non-word-for-word manner, but I'm trying to give you the sense of what it says, not necessarily the words underneath it. Yeah. Uh, a study Bible with notes, would that be uh, considered a commentary? No. The notes are a commentary, but the Bible isn't. Like, for example, MacArthur's Study Bible, all right? That comes from the, well, whatever version you get now. I guess there's, you, got the, you can get the NASB version and the New King James Version. Um, the version itself, the text itself, is a translation, but the comments are a commentary on it. But that's not a commentary translation. All right? Now, if he put all of... Yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, maybe an example of this would be some of the, the children's Bibles, you know, where they they talk about the stories, but they don't really go to the words, that kind of thing. Barry. For your own personal use. Um, it's very much up to you. There's no, there's no like, okay, I've had, I've had NASB long enough. I'm going to go to a new version. Um, it doesn't work that way. If you're, and, and this is the big, the big picture item I want you to get out of this. If you have a version of the Bible that you're comfortable with, stick with it. You don't need to go to a new version, necessarily. Again, understand what a commentary is. It's that person's interpretation. It may be good. It may be bad. That's why you're supposed to be a student and study on your own. So that you don't just, okay, whatever, whatever he says, I'll go with it. You know, you don't want to do that. And it's good to compare a couple of different versions. There's nothing wrong with that. And actually, NASB and King James, that's a good duo to have. You know, because NASB is pretty literal. Um, and King James is, is more literary, and you can get a different nuance. You don't need to go to 25 different versions. You don't need to go to your, you know, when you're studying a text, you really don't need to go to 25 different versions. Because one of the problems, and this is what drives me nutso with uh, Saddleback, uh, Warren's, you know, it's like, what version of the Bible do I take to his service? You know, he could be quoted from 20 different versions in one message. You know, he'll use the CEV, he'll use the NLP, he'll use the, you know, don't go there, all right? If you've got a version that you're comfortable with, stick it with it until you feel like it may be good to, or you may want to go to a different one, all right? Does that make any sense? Don't jump from translation to translation just because there's a new cool translation out. Yeah, New Living. Yeah. The, the new, I think it's NIV or New Living Translation or the two. Jim uses NIV. All right. Now, now, is there anything wrong with using? You're going to ask me. Okay, what do you think, Schaefer? Should he use the NIV? All right. Well, personally, if I was preaching, I wouldn't, only because 
The NIV is more of a dynamic equivalence. We're going to talk about that. It's translating the ideas, not the words. There's nothing wrong with that if you get the ideas right. Okay? It's not an evil translation. I would probably use something else. I would probably use like an, an ESV myself. Huh? No. But, but, the, but the whole point is, it's, it's, the whole point I'm trying to make here, it's a matter of preference. Don't run out of here screaming that somehow somebody's a heretic because they use the NIV or the New Living Translation. It, a lot of it is a matter of preference. And here's the other thing. Here's the other thing you need to be careful of. Um, if you've got a very literate church, right, biblically literate, you can get away with a NASB. If you've got a church where there's a lot of young Christians and a lot of new people coming in, a NASB is sort of tough to, to read through. You're better off using an NIV or a New Living Translation. And that's why I think Jim uses the NIV, because that's a little bit easier for the average person coming in who's a new believer to pick up and follow and understand. A KJV is a tough one for a new, re- new Christian. I would not recommend that one. The same, the same thought process holds true with commentary. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I, I, I had Matthew Henry's. He's tough to read. Yeah. His, you know, well, paragraph of Matthew Henry's two pages. Yeah. But if you look back in the 1800s, he'd be all right because you'd think differently. But yeah. But if you do and Zook, they make it contemporary. It's easy to read. And I and, and understand in, in the, at the end of the next set of slides here that we'll get to one of these days, probably next week, um, I go through and I, I, I give questions on how to help you pick a translation. You know, questions to ask yourself when you want to choose a translation. Understand that for the most part, for the most part, it is a matter of preference. There's nothing evil or wicked about using one translation over another. And although I may prefer a different translation than maybe Pastor Jim does, doesn't make him wrong, me right, or me right, and, or me wrong and him right. It's a matter of preference. And, and, and as a pastor, you know, his job is how can I communicate the truth of the Word of God best to the people and the audience? And the NIV is a good medium, a good translation for that. So that's why he uses the NIV. You know, so there's nothing wrong with that. Hopefully you don't run out here and tell him that I think he's bad because he uses the NIV. I don't think that way at all. All right, that's not what I'm trying to get at. See, you're at that level where you can pull that off. A lot of people aren't. You know, you got to grow into that. Okay. Well, you're 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 past the student stage. You're now working your way into the scholar level. You know, where you're actually going back to original languages. All right. And if you do that, that's great. But most people don't understand original languages. They don't have their Greek lexicons and all that stuff. So for them, get a couple of good translations. Compare the two. They got some that have like the parallel study Bible. You got four translations on a page. That's helpful. Um, the, the thing to understand though is just to understand what it is that you've got in front of you. Is it a translation? It is, a, is, it, is it a paraphrase? Is it a literal translation or a dynamic equivalent one? We're going to talk about that. 
Um, where does it land on that spectrum? And just understand what it is you're looking at. That's all. But for by and large, I would suggest get a translation that you like. Go for it. Now we've talked about this word dynamic equivalent. What do we mean by dynamic equivalent? What we mean by that is we're taking the meaning of a phrase in one language and translating it to a phrase in another language, not necessarily word for word. Now, whenever you do translation, you're going to do a certain amount of this. All right? For example, in the Hebrew text, it says, God's nose got red. Now, translate that into English. What do you think it means? He got angry. He got angry. Right. Because to the Hebrews, when you get really mad, what happens? Your face gets flushed, your nose gets red. All right? So, if, if you just translate that literally... God's nose got red at Israel. You're saying, what in the world is... What do you mean, nose got red? All right, cold eye, yeah. Um, No, what it means is God got angry. So what you're doing is you're trying to take the meaning of a phrase to the meaning of another phrase. Now, in any translation, you're going to have a certain amount of that. What we're talking about here is degree. Okay, degree. How far do you go in doing that? And what you find is, for example, the NIV has done a significant amount of dynamic equivalent. They've done more than the NASB, much more than the NASB, and uh, more than the King James and some of the other versions. Now, what is the, what is the good thing about dynamic equivalent? What's good about it? Readable. It's readable and understandable in our language. All right, we understand what it means. What's one of the dangers? Pardon? It might not mean exactly the same, but what are you depending on? The translator to get it right. Okay? Now, for the most part, they get it right. So we're not talking about gross error here. Okay? What we are talking about is nuances. So that's why if you use a dynamic equivalent translation like an NIV, all right, and you're going to do study, you want to do deep study, what should you also have next to you? A, a more literal translation, like the NASB. So, so and, and again, this is if you're starting to go down that level of study, the scholar, you're starting to go deeper and deeper into the text, all right, you would want a, if you use a dynamic equivalent translation, then get your, balance it off with a literal translation. And then there are some places where it'll give you additional nuances or meaning. So you follow what I'm saying there? Alright? Now again, I'm not saying don't use the NIV or don't use a dynamic equivalent. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying don't use that as your study Bible necessarily. You know, for reading, you want to do, you know, your daily Bible reading, use the NIV. Go for it. Don't worry about it. Um, Another problem with the, with being so literal that a Bible would literally say God's nose got red, not only could some person say, gee, it must have been cold outside, but they would say, oh, that means God's got a body. You know, yeah. it would be all kinds of misunderstandings. Right, and so, and so that's why I'm, I'm giving you all the complexities that go underneath a translation. Yeah. What about the Amplified Bible? Amplified Bible is a... Yeah, the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible is a paraphrase. 
It's an expanded. It's much more. That's why I call it amplified. It's much more expanded. There's nothing wrong with it. The amplified Bible, by the way, is a good um, paraphrase to have. But don't say, "Well, my version is the amplified Bible," because what you're doing now is you're depending on somebody else's interpretation of that text. See, that's one of the things, you know, as a, as a student, when you get down to the student scholar level, where do you want to get your information? From somebody else or from the Holy Spirit? Yeah, and how do you get it from the Holy Spirit usually? you got to study it on your own. All right? Now, it's okay to listen to what John MacArthur says or Chuck Swindoll or Charles Stanley or Jim Minling or Alan Schaefer. It's okay. But if you're depending on us to tell you what the Bible means all the time and you just go for it, what if we're wrong? That's why you need to be a Berean. That's one of the things that the Bereans were noble. What did they do when Paul came into town and he told them stuff? They didn't say, okay, he's a prophet. I'm just going to go with what he says. No, they went back and they checked it out on their own. That's what the Word of Faith boys want you to do. We're the prophets. You shut up. You listen to us. And we'll tell you what to believe. That's not the way it works. you got to go back and study it on your own. Yeah. Oh, somebody's always got to ask that question, huh? Um, I would go with the UBS Greek New Testament um, for that one. What? Yeah, I would go with... You're asking me what the best one is. I go back to the original. Get as close to the original. Learn Greek and pick up a UBS Greek. Yeah. I, as I said before, it is a matter of preference. A lot, it, 90... 95% of this, for your primary Bible version, 95 plus percent is what are, you, what are you comfortable with reading? What are you used to? What's the most literal? The, the more literal one is a NASB. Okay? Now, I recently picked up the English Standard Version, which I like quite a bit. That's the one I use now. Um, the New King James is a good version. I love the King James. That's all the memory verses that I memorized. You know, I've got that deep into me. But I can handle the King James. But, you know, you toss a King James on a brand new Christian, you know, and they're going to, their eyes are going to glaze over. Give them something like the NIV or give them a more modern translation for them to use. All right? Again, you know, people, th this is one of those hills that there's a lot of smoke and fire and energy expended on, you know, to get the right version. And, you know, the KJV only people are, you know, they're just you know, bent on the fact if you don't use the King James, you're, you're on your way to hell. You're using a, a demonic, deceptive Bible. That's baloney. That is smoke. That's fire. That's fud. That does, it's something to not get all bent out of shape about. Pick a version that you like and go with it. It's, it's very readable. It's, it's a nice English flowing translation. And it's very close um, to the really to the New King James, and they've also taken into consideration the latest manuscript evidence and scholarship that they have. All right? I just like it. You know, I, I, I prefer it. I use it. Um, that's just my preference. When you, say, Go on. when you say don't jump from version to version and find something that you're comfortable and stick with, I get that, but you're not saying don't own don't possess a budget for study stage. No, if you come into my house, you know, I've got an ESV, I've got an RSV, I've got a King James, I've got a New King James, I've got the Amplified Bible. 
I got um, good news for modern man. I got the UBS Greek. I've got um, two or three different Greek texts actually. I've got the Hebrew text. You know, I probably got I don't know 15, 20 different. I only have the Rainbow Bible. Don't have that one. Um, you know, I have a whole bunch of different ones. But if you ask me now, which one do you study it from? I'll take the. You know, I go out of the SV. That's the one I use. That's my preference. All right. And if I'm, you know, if I want to study really deep into a text, I go from there to the Greek. That's me. That's just I do that. Other people might go from there to the NASB because they're not Greek literate. That's okay if you're not Greek literate. Use a, a NASB or something like that. But what I'm saying is, when I talk about jumping from Bible to Bible, what happens a lot of times is, um, you know, you're putting a lesson together, and uh, you got six different versions. And you pick the version that makes the point in the way that you like it made best. And then you, then you go to the set point two, and there's a different version that makes the point a little bit better that you like. Don't do that. All right? You're going to drive your people bonkers trying to figure out, you know, what is it that they're using now? Don't go there. That, that's what drives me personally nuts with Rick Warren. You know, the guy's got 30 different versions. And, you know, if you want to take your Bible to church, you got you got to take six... You know, you got a stack of Bibles that big to figure out which one he's actually using that day. Don't go there. Don't don't do that. You're going to confuse yourself and confuse people. Pick a version and go for it. What's your comment, Alan? There, there's been some secular press about the message. What's your comment on the message? Eugene Peterson, the message. Take it for what it is. It is a paraphrase, or at best, a very loose translation. Understand that Eugene Peterson has, do, has done a tremendous amount of interpretation for you. All right? So before I would use the message in a message or in a class, I would go back and I would look at the message and I would say, is he picking up what I would see as the original intent of the text? And just saying it in a nice, prosaic way, but he actually has the idea that is being said. And if that's the case, I would use it. All right? But, but here's the point. I always, personally, I always go back as, as close as I can to the original text. That's what you want to do. If you're teaching, if you're a teacher, you're at that student scholar level, you want to go back as best you can to original languages or something close to them. You don't want a loose translation. Okay, for people who, you know, most of us, don't know Greek or Hebrew, so how about the Strong's Concordance? Yeah, use the. Yeah, you can use this. The, the point here's here's one of the points, and um, we're not going to get to this sheet today. We'll get to it next week. Don't worry. That's the beauty about this. We can go an extra week, and nobody will get after us, you know, um, because these are important questions. Um, there are Greek works out today where you can, you can take advantage of the Greek language without knowing Greek. All right? There are study Bibles. There are what we call interlinear Bibles. There are works. On the computer, the computer is an amazing thing. You can get computer software now where it'll, it'll go to the verse and it'll show you all the Greek words and it'll show you uh, what word it came from and where that word is used elsewhere in Scripture. Those are very, that, that, now you're down to the scholar level. Now you're getting down below where you're really trying to dig out the truth. 
But the point is, you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar or Greek scholar to take advantage of some of that, if that's where you want to go. You don't need to know Greek. It's helpful, maybe, but you don't need to know it, because you can transliterate it well enough. But, all, you know, as far as the translation goes, find yourself a translation that you like and stick with it. And, and we'll, we're going to talk about the different English translations and where they came from so you have an idea. Next week, really, is we're going to get into the, the English translation um, part. So is, is, is this making sense so far? you have any more questions on this whole concept here? We're gonna, we'll wrap it up late next week so you really understand it, but at least you've got an idea now. And, and, and understand this. For the most part, for the most part, there are no evil translations out there. Okay? There are a couple of them. One of them would be the New International Version of the Greek New Testament by the Jehovah Witnesses. Alright? Stay away from that one. Because what they have done, they've gone through and they've systematically altered the Greek text to fit their theology that Jesus is not God. Alright? So, in their case, they've, they've actually altered the text. See, what is your, remember, what is your job as a textual critic? What's your number one priority as a textual critic? If you were a textual critic. Accuracy. I'm going to accurately try to determine what the original text was. That's your job. Not to bring your theology in, but to understand what, what was it that Paul really wrote when he wrote Romans. That's your job. What the New International, or the, not the New International, the New World Translators have done is they've altered that. They said, well, we don't like what John originally said, so we're going to change it around to make it fit our theology. And that's what they've done. So stay away from that one. Another one to stay away from, and this is one thing, personally, that makes me leery of the NIV. It's just me. Is that the same people who translate the NIV now come out with the TNIV. All right? The TNIV is a... I want to, I want to use it a Rush Limbaugh word, a feministic translation where they've created God as a gender-free being. You know, God is it now. It's not a he, it's an it. And what they've done is they've gone through and tried to create a gender-neutral, it's called a gender-neutral translation. What's the problem with that? That's not how it was written. Alright, now, the problem is, most people don't like the way it was written. So if I don't like the way something was written, what am I going to do as a pagan? Rewrite it. Make it sound like I want it to sound. So, when you pick a translation, and this is another question to ask when it comes to the translators, how committed are they to the inerrant, authoritative Word of God? How, how, what's their view of inerrancy? What is their view of the accuracy of the text? If you've got somebody who doesn't believe in the accuracy of the text, if they don't believe in the biblical inerrancy, and you're trying to have them translate a Bible for you, I'd stay away from them, folks. All right. Or if they want to change it to fit a modern perspective, I'd stay away from that. That's why, for example, I shun every Bible, you know, the golfer's study Bible, the, you know, end time study Bible, the ladies study Bible, the men's study Bible, you know. What are all of these things doing? What are they all introducing? A spin on the text. Folks, just get a Bible. <laughs> 
You don't need the prophecy study Bible or the charismatic study Bible or the whatever other ones. they. And you can go to the Zondervan bookstore. You know, they got shelves full of these things. All different spins on it. Get a translation. Get a good, solid translation. Stick with it. Find one that you like to read that you can understand and go for it. And maybe pick a couple others that you use as a reference when you're going for that, but just pick one. But don't go out there and try to find a Bible that, that spins the Word of God the way you want it to be spun. That's, that's the difficulty. Because, for example, and I'm getting a little bit off on the rabbit trail, but rabbit, on a rabbit trail, but it's important. Let's say I have, I'm going to pick one out of the air, the, the, the psychology study Bible. There is one of those, I think it is. All right. How are they approaching Scripture? From a, what kind of viewpoint? A secular, intellectual, psychological viewpoint. Now, how are they going to interpret Scripture then? The same way. So, what you're getting is not necessarily the Word of God. It's a tainted understanding. And what are all their study notes slanted towards? The secular interpretation of junk. All right? So, for example, when... And I, we had somebody do this. A guy gets up and says, well, you know, um, you know, we all have this child within us. You ever heard of the child within baloney? John Bradshaw, the child within. He said, well, you know, the Bible says that. Paul said, you know, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I act like a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. So he even recognized the child within. And anybody who knows anything about Bible study would understand. What is Paul saying? That we all have a child within us psychologically? He's saying, grow up. Has nothing to do with a child within. Good night. You don't have any child within. I remember when I first saw John Bradshaw on TV, and he had a room full of people that were all elderly, much elderly than what I see here. And they had teddy bears and little dolls with them. I'm talking about, you know, guys that are retirees with their teddy bear, and they're trying to get in, ch- in touch with their inner child that they've abused all these years. And it's like, oh, sheesh. You know, I shake my head. And then... Wouldn't you know it, some Christian guy comes along and says the same stuff a few years later. The point is, when you get into these kind of Bibles, like the different kinds of study Bibles, where you're trying to give a particular slant, they're slanted towards psychology, towards men's issues, towards women's issues, towards whatever issues. You've got to be careful with those. Now, somebody's going to ask, well, what about the MacArthur study Bible? You know, what about that? Or what about the Ryrie study Bible? Those are a little, or Schofield. Those are a little different because what they're trying, they're, they're approaching it from more of a neutral. They're not trying to slant the scripture towards a man or a woman or a, they're trying, they're more of a neutral slant, okay? But again, if you're going to get the MacArthur Study Bible and just believe everything John MacArthur believes, you're not a student, are you? You're not being a student. You need to go and study it for yourself. You need to do the work on your own. Good night. This took a lot longer than I thought. But it's, hopefully it's a good discussion here. Yeah. Now, what I'm going to do in just the next 17 minutes is I'm going to fly through the, the ancient translations. All right. Um, the handouts you have, bring them next week because that's what we're going to do. All right. And I'll get, if you want, I'm going to get these handouts of Teresa. What happened is I sent her these handouts. I sat down last night to go through the class. I said, wait a minute, I'm missing something. And I looked and found out I'm missing 
all the stuff we talked about. So that's my fault, not her fault. You can blame me. All right. Um, when we talk about ancient translations, the reason I'm bringing this up and why it's important is because ancient translation gives us a good window into what the Greek text or the original text were at the time that translation was done. You understand what that what I'm saying there? So, for example, the Septuagint is a very good thing to have because what's it telling us? It's telling us what the Hebrew text was in 200 B.C. We get a good understanding of what they had. All right? And what we find when we start putting all of this together, not only the Greek text that we have, but all the translations and everything, what are we able to get closer to? The original. We're able to much better understand, and we're much better able to understand how did they translate that Greek word. We think it means this. How did the people in the second century understand it to be? Because I know what that word is in Syriac and what that means, and this is the word they use to translate this Greek word, and that helps me understand what that Greek word is. And by the way, there's a, for those of you who are really into this, there's something called the big kettles, K-I-T-T-E-L-S. It's a ten-volume set. It's about that big on your shelf. And what it does, it takes every Greek word in the New Testament and it gives you a complete history of the usage of that Greek word in all contemporary Greek works and all translations. So if you really want to get into this thing, you can do that. All right? You really want to get into it. All right? But what you see from these ancient translations, they pop up um, prior really to A.D. 350, so these are going way back. Now remember, what's the earliest Greek, sort of full Greek text that we have of the New Testament? Remember, Vata, Vaticanus. That's about the earliest. And where's that? Mid-300s. Okay? So, if I've got translations going back to 200 A.D. or something like that, what can I get an idea, or what can I almost reconstruct from those translations? A Greek text from 200, right? See what I'm getting at? That's why they're important. Okay? And there's different ones of these here. Um, you've got the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, Targums, which are a like a commentary, the Talmud Midrash. Those are commentaries. Horizon's example is very interesting. What it is is he gave, actually, he tried to do a um, the first parallel study Bible. So he had like Latin... Greek, Hebrew, and like three other languages that he all put together. Sort of like in a, in a six-columnar format. Alright, so he was, he was the first one that came out with, we can go and get a parallel study Bible with four translations. He had six of them. Alright. Um, medieval translations, there are ancient translations, and then there are medieval ones. Um, the medieval translations date from about, yeah. The No, we got copies of them. And in some cases, all we have is maybe a reference to the existence of one of them. All right? But what ha the point here is this. Very early on, what was the Christian church doing? Translating it into other languages. All right? From Greek to Latin to other languages very early on. Medieval translations were from about 350 to 1400. Probably the number one major translation during this time was Jerome's Latin Vulgate, all right, which is a very important translation. By the way, the Vulgate is not an evil translation. What does Vulgate mean? People. People. It's a Latin word. 
It's a people's Bible. It was the first Bible. Because what did most people in the Roman Empire, what language did they understand? Latin. So they created a Latin version of the Bible. Of the common people. It was very common folks. And then we got modern translations. They come following mainly Wycliffe from the 1380s on. These are the modern translations. Um, and the difference with a modern translation than, than many of the earlier translations is the modern translations use a textual critical approach. What does that mean? We're taking into consideration translations, all the different manuscript evidence, all the manuscript families. We're taking all of that into consideration to one degree or another in modern translations. We have a richer um, manuscript tradition. All right? Um, yeah. Speaking of uh, Wycliffe, an interesting thing is that the Wycliffe Bible translators have a, an initiative now mm -hmm. to at least have started a translation in every known language by uh, 2025. Yeah. If you're ever down in Orlando, Florida, um, not too far from the airport where you fly in, they have the international headquarters for um, Campus Crusade for Christ. And right across the lake is the international headquarters for Wycliffe. And they have a really cool um, display there showing how they do that. How, you know, you, they, you know, they parachute into some place in Bongo Bongo and they, they, they form a, a, like a phonetic base, you know, to, under, to create a written language. And then they go and they translate. It's pretty fascinating how they pull this thing off. It's really interesting. Um, but if you're down there, go through that. It's really interesting to see how they do this stuff. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're big, big push, alright? Um, ancient translations help us understand what, two things, two major things. Number one, what was considered canonical, right? Because if I'm an ancient translator, what am I going to translate? The junk or the stuff I consider to be canonical, inspired. So it helps us with the canonicity issue. It also helps us with words that we may not quite understand very well, because if we understand Oh, this is how it was translated into Syriac. This is how it's translated into Coptic. This is how it's translated into Egyptian. I can now understand what that word may mean a little better. All right? So that's where they help us. Um, they help us discover clues as to what the manuscripts may have been if they no longer exist. Right? We don't have any manuscripts from 200, but we have a translation from 200 A.D., and that would give us a hint as to what they were translating from. Following what's going on here? All right. I'm not trying to turn you into textual critics. I'm helping you see that very early on the church, I mean, from the, from the very earliest points in time, the church was translating the Bible. And why is that? Why do they want to translate it? So people could get it, so people can understand it, so people could have it in their own language. Very early on, very early, now, now this is different a lot, a lot different, more different than, for example, um, the Hebrew, who, you know, the, the Jews basically said, look, you want to read the Bible, learn Hebrew and come and you can read it. Um, the early church says, what is your language? We're going to try to give a version in your language so that you can read it in, your, in the language of your, your own. Which was first done on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit. Yep, in, in the tongues. Yeah. And see, here's the whole point. God wants you to understand the Word of God. And He's going to do everything He can to make sure you understand it. Now, I'm not going to go through the origin of the Samaritans. You can read these slides on your own next week. But basically, they're the half-breed Jews. Between Remember Christ went through Samaria? They're the half-breeds. 
Um, this is where they came from. I'm not going to go through it here. Um, but basically what they did is they have something called the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is the first five books of Moses. The Samaritans were not allowed to come down to Jerusalem to worship, so what did they do? They created their own. So instead of going to Mount, Jeru you know, Mount Moriah to worship, they went to Mount Gerizim. And remember the woman at the well of Samaria, what did she ask Christ? Where do we worship? In Gerizim or in Jerusalem? What did Christ say? Ultimately, it doesn't matter, but the Jews have the truth. So what technically is he telling them? It should be Jerusalem, but there's times coming when it doesn't matter where you worship God. The whole point here is what they did, what the Samaritans did, is they took the Pentateuch and they substituted Gerizim for Moriah and made a couple other changes, but they have a very old copy. Of the, we got some of these that go back way, way, way back. All right, And they help us understand the Hebrew text. And these are written in what we call Syriac, which is a different, it's not Hebrew, it's Syriac or Aramaic, all right, which is their language that they use. And today, for example, if you go to some, and go someplace in the Middle East there, up in the Samaria, where Samaria used to be, they still do these, they still have these old Torahs and things like that that they worship from. They, they, they use them today, all right. Um, and, uh, I'm not going to go through that whole thing. Aramaic targums are paraphrased. Yeah. I'm sorry, I just Haplography. Thank you. Okay. Haplography is a fancy word we defined four weeks ago, which is a slip of the pen. Transposition of a letter, a misspelling of a word. That's called haplography. Comes from accidents, as it happens to Yep. Yep, that's what it is. An, an accidental writing error. Okay? The point is, when they do a comparison of these ancient translations to the text that we have, we're pretty much on the money. Alright? There's no change. Aramaic targums here are um, oral paraphrases. They're used in public worship, you know, more of like a lectionary kind of thing. Um, they don't help us in textual criticism, but they, they do help us understand how did the ancient rabbis interpret their own Bible, their own Old Testament. How did they understand it? You know, how did they understand Isaiah 53? What did they understand about that saying? So that's where this comes in. But a targum is really not a translation, it's more of a commentary. The Talmud and Mishrat, Mishnah, or Midrash is the new thing. Um, it contains the Mishra, Mishnah and the Gemara. All it is is this is a commentary. This is their ancient study Bible. <laughs> it's a commentary on their Old Testament is what it is. And it takes into consideration all of the teachings of all the various rabbis. So that's what the Midrash is and the, and the Talmud. So we'll talk about that. Um, the Syriac Peshitta is another translation. Um, it, uh, the, the text it uses dates... Uh, somewhere around the middle of the 5th century A.D. And if you get a UBS Greek, and I'm hurrying through this, but I want you to understand just some of the various things that are out there. But if you see something like S-Y-R-P at the bottom, that's the Syriac Peshitta. That's a translation that dates, in Syriac, dates from about the 5th century A.D. You've got um, another 
seriohexaplaric—that's a good one, hexaplaric version. Remember, I told you about Origen's Bible had six different translations. Well, one of them was Syriac. All right, and they took the, his column, and that's where they get this one here. Um, the Diatessaron of Tatian. The Diatessaron is interesting. It was the earliest example of a harmony of the Gospels. So what Tatian tried to do is harmonize all of the Gospels, and it's called the Diatessaron. It dates from about A.D. 170. All right. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any copies of this, but we do know that it existed. So very early on, you see them trying to come up with the harmony of the Gospels. You see them all the things that we have today. They were doing back then. Yeah. Don't know the answer to that. Don't know the answer to that one. Um, there's an old Syriac version that goes back. Um, both represent. They go back to a text that was about the late second or early third century A.D. before some of the texts we have. So if we go back and look at these early Syriac versions here, we can get an idea of what the Greek text was that they were translating from. Okay, And this is interesting, just to toss this out as a bone. If you were all KJV only, you wouldn't like this. But the manuscript tradition that a lot of these have in them is not the Byzantine, but the Alexandrian. Which, remember, to a KJV-only person is the demonic text from Alexandria, Egypt. That's what you see the early church using. Um, we got other Syriac. I'm, I'm hurrying through this. I'm going to just fly through this. The Septuagint, we talk about this a lot, the importance of it being the Greek translation of not only the Hebrew, but then also later on in the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus having the, you know, a compiled compilation of the New Testament. Um, let's, let's see. Uh, the second line is very important here. The, the Septuagint is very consistent with the Masoretic text, which tells you what? Whatever text that they translated from, the Hebrew part of the Septuagint from, is very close to what is in the Masoretic text of 12 or 1300 years later. So what does that tell you about the Masoretic text? It's pretty accurate. Okay? And by the way, this is interesting. The New Testament writers are quoted from the Septuagint significantly. Book of Hebrews. All the quotes in the Old Testament are from the Septuagint. Um, I'm not going to go into that. I'm, I'm, this is all. You've taken the college class. We'll go through all of this, but we're not. You're not. I'm not going to take you through it all. Here's a Rigen's hexaple just really quickly. The six columns. Um, he had six different columns there in his. Um, the Coptic and Ethiopic are interesting. What have, they, they come from the, Egypt, the Christian church down in Egypt, down in the Ethiopia area. That's the Coptic. All right. Now, one of the problems with the Coptic is we get a lot of these weird books from them. You know, some of the, some of the, the Gnostic stuff. But there is a Coptic text that we have that or translation we have that gives us some insight into the translation of the scriptures. The Ethiopic um, text, the Gothic, I'm not going to go through all of these. The, the, point is, the point is what you have is there's a lot of translations of nations around Israel 
that we have old translations from. And when we take them all together, we can get insights into what the original text was. It helps us nuance it just a little better. The um, other one is the old Latin of the Italia, which was before the Vulgate. The Italia was before the Vulgate. Um, and this was the, of course, the, Itali or the Latin translation. There's a couple of different texts that we have here, um, the Bobensis and the Versalensis, and the Verone, I can't even pronounce that. If I was a, probably if I was a, an Italian, I could do that. All right. And then, um, really, it didn't, we're going to end with this here. We have finally the, the, the background of all of this, and in the, in the, you have the three Italian, old Italias, and so what the church wanted to do is they wanted to create an authoritative Latin text. All right. And so what they did is the problem is they had different Latin versions in use because everybody would make their own. And the church wanted an official Latin text to use. All right. And because Latin was becoming the known language of the day, most people knew it. This is about the 300s. You've got Constantine and all of that. They wanted a good Latin translation of the Bible. So what was happening is um, and also there was a lot of heretical groups every group had their own translation their own version so what the church wanted to do was try and come up with an authoritative version um, and so what you had there is the Latin Vulgate and that was started by Jerome in AD 382 finished in AD 405 and what it did is it, it, it went back to the original languages it went back to the original text that they had and he created a Latin version. Um, the Apocrypha was included, but just because other things had it. But the Latin Vulgate, by the way, is a very good translation. And um, today we have two different versions of that. By the way, this was the Bible produced by Gutenberg off the press. Remember he. The first book printed was the Bible, was the Latin Vulgate, and uh, it is behind the Douay Reims version that we have today. So, so, here's the upshot of the last 15 minutes. Okay, there's a lot of translations going on in the early centuries. These translations that we have today help us understand nuances of the text because it helps us understand what the church considered canonical. It helps us understand how they translated different words that we might not quite have a really a good understanding of. And it shows that the Word of God is being spread throughout the known world in all the different languages of the people. Alright, so those are the upshot of the thing. Next week what we're going to do is we're going to finish the handouts that you have today and uh, we'll be done with bibliology. So, any questions or comments or anything so far? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are churches in there that, that sort of residually stayed over the, over the centuries. Um, like, you know, there's still a Coptic church in Egypt right now. Um, in, in Egypt, you can have on your ID card whether you're, you know, you're a Muslim or a Coptic Christian, basically. Um, 
But what you see is you see the spread of Christianity, especially after, after Acts. Remember in Acts 2, where did everybody go? Back to their own countries and own nations. Well, they're the ones that took some of these translations or did some of these translations. And uh, although some of them did not exist, we still have their old writings. No. Look at Asia Minor. There's hardly any there. That, used, that was the seven churches. And look what we have now. But All right. Well, let's close in prayer. I'm sorry I went a few minutes over. Father, thanks for this day and for granting us this time to study. And we thank you, Father, that we have the ability to pick up your word in our own language and understand it. And that's a very important thing. And I, I think one of our difficulties is we don't really appreciate fully the price that was paid for us to do that and the work behind it. Help us to appreciate the Bible that we have and to study it and read it and see it as your words to us. And we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.